Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Let's start with a big question. When you were growing up, from your early teen years to your early 20s, who were the people who made up the support system around you? Family, friends, teachers, and mentors who helped you hit those big milestones like learning to drive, getting your first job, and graduating from school. If you're lucky, you had a lot of people helping you on your pathway to adulthood. The reality is that all young people need and deserve support on the runway to independence as they develop into adults. But there are a lot of young people out there that don't have any runway at all and who live their formative years without a stable support system, income, or family to help them on the transition to adulthood. In those cases, the government sometimes provides basic safety net supports, but that doesn't mean it's easy for them. In this episode, we're taking a deep dive into understanding young people's perspectives, experiences, and challenges accessing and retaining safety net supports and thinking about how to approach the safety net for young people in ways that meet their needs and build on their strengths. So let's go. Heather Tribble works in Tennessee with an organization called Youth Villages, assisting young adults who are aging out of the foster care system. She sees a lot of young people who have no backing during this critical time in life. When our, when our young adults, when we get them at youth village, the biggest issue they have is homelessness. Sometimes these young adults have exited custody. They have no connections to a bio family. They maybe have lost contact with former foster parents. They don't really have friends they can stay with. And so our young adults find themselves every day trying to figure out where I'm going to lay my head at. And so they find themselves like couch surfing, staying at shelters. We know young adults have to sleep in cars or outside. And that's the everyday struggle they're having. They can't think through, you know, what are my longer term goals around school and education? Every day they're trying to figure out where am I going to lay my head at? How am I going to get access to food? I don't have any clean clothes. Access to basic needs like food, housing, health care and income during these critical years can have a huge impact on young people's ability to succeed. So once our young people are stable with basic needs, then they're able to think about school. They've got somewhere safe to live and they have food to eat. They can focus on school. So they were helping our young adults. Okay, how do we access school? And I can focus on school because I have a safe place to live and I'm able to eat every day so I can function in class and do well in school. And so it all kind of builds upon each other. The basic needs being met are the biggest things. Once that foundation is laid and it's solid, then our young adults can think about school and work and transportation. For many young people, when it comes to meeting their basic needs, that's where the array of public services and supports that we call the safety net comes in. Programs like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, which provides benefits to pay for food, or Medicaid, which provides medical coverage or housing or cash assistance. The safety net is for people of all ages, of course, but when it comes to young people, it can offer an especially important support as they transition to adulthood. Alejandra works at Young Invincibles in New York City, raising awareness of COVID vaccines among community members. She's navigated the safety net herself, and she says, well, it's not easy, it's essential. This is our way of surviving, these safety nets. And if we get a lot of no's, we have to figure it out somehow. We want to be like normal college kids or normal young professionals. Like, we just want to face the challenges in front of us in a normal way and, and not have to worry about hey, can I afford my groceries? Or like, hey, like I haven't had health insurance in three years. So I definitely think that resilience is just a way of me surviving. 
and a lot of young people too. And resilience is essential because even though the safety net is there to support, it has a lot of holes and pain points that can be especially tricky for young adults. We talked with Urban Institute researcher Heather Hahn about these challenges. The processes for accessing public benefits are notoriously complicated and confusing. Young people have, just by virtue of their age, have less experience with those kinds of bureaucratic processes. They also, given their developmental stage, young people may have less confidence in navigating those processes or speaking up for themselves or having that sort of self-advocacy that may be necessary for making it through a complicated application process. Lisa, who also works at Young Invincibles, helping other young people get involved in policy advocacy, agrees. I think as a young person, it can be very hard to assert yourself. It can be very hard to tell people what you need. And oftentimes people don't really look at you seriously or take you seriously and give you the resources that you actually need. In fact, Heather notes that safety net programs are just not designed with young people in mind. Young people often lack legal authority or face other age-related constraints to getting benefits. For example, they may not be able to apply or get assistance for themselves because they're a minor. And sometimes the ways that young people's lives are set up just don't work for the program's rules and requirements. One example of a way that programs may not reflect the realities and the needs of young people is in the need for their relationships and the nature of their relationships with others. For example, in some housing programs, we heard where young people may have access to some supportive housing, but they're not allowed to have roommates. This just is developmentally at odds with what most young people are doing. They are sharing resources with each other and having someone stay with them or having formal roommates. Similarly, with SNAP, there are some rules about who you can share food with because your SNAP benefit is based on who is in your household and how many people are sharing food. But young people, again, may have a different kind of relationship with people where they are sharing food and sharing resources and maybe running afoul of rules if they are doing what otherwise is completely appropriate for a young person to be doing. Magby, a young advocate for Young Invincibles and a student at the City College of New York, accesses health coverage through Medicaid. She says the program doesn't always take into account other students like her. What's more, it doesn't always occur to her fellow students that they might need it. I think we're often left out because we are focused on, again, families. A lot of us are pretty young. We think that we won't get into a very large accident or we won't get into an issue where we would need to focus on our health that much because we're always just so focused on work. The main priority for a lot of graduates are to find jobs and to work. When it comes to healthcare, that's something you expect to get from your job, right? But I think it's important to start thinking about that, again, as soon as you can, because you never know what can happen to you while you're in school. And Lisa, who has personally experienced housing instability, said the hurdles required for accessing housing assistance can be really tough. I'm speaking from my experience when I've tried to apply for housing assistance, for example. It's not necessarily that it's not readily available, but 
you know, for example, if you need, let's say, taxes from your parents because you're still considered like a, a minor, at least in my experience, I was not able to obtain just for various different reasons. It can be intimidating, overwhelming when you don't have the information and you're not able to apply for these things. So as you might imagine, the safety net is intimidating, even in the best of circumstances, and it can be complicated to access these supports. And for young people, it's just not ideal. But there are some clear ways to try to fix this. So when we think about strategies to make safety net programs work better for young people, I'm going to point to four high-level strategies. The first is to simplify access and support young people in navigating the safety net processes. Alejandra at Young Invisibles in New York says the application process for safety net programs can be very daunting. Some of the challenges that a lot of our students that we work with face is the fact that some people are so intimidated uh, reasonably enough with the application process itself. Just the fact that it asks for so much paperwork, um, for example, like two weeks of pay stubs, right? Or something like a piece of mail that says your name and your address, or just really not understanding the concept of how many people are in my household, you know, how many heads are those. And I feel like even though it seems like simple, it's not. Heather Tribble at Youth Villages agrees that there are lots of ways that the safety net system could be simplified, streamlined and sped up so that young people don't get frustrated and give up on the process. They need quick results. You can think about a homeless young adult who's 18, doesn't have anywhere to live and needs food. The thought of having to do an application and to wait a time for an interview and then to finally get the food sample card in the mail, they have an emergent immediate need. And so in that moment, they need food. And the thought of this might take another month, you know, it's easy for them to just say, never mind, I'll figure it out a different way. Alejandra says making the application simpler means making it a bit more flexible. I think in that case, it would be an application that is a little more flexible when it comes to, hey, give us a permanent address, like give us proof of permanent address, give us pay stubs, because there's a lot of college students who don't have traditional jobs don't have traditional living situations. So once these safety net applications start to open up to young people, I expect the application to be more flexible and be easier to answer for young people. Researcher Heather Hahn says another promising way to make safety net programs work better for young people is to... Empower and support young people in decision-making. Teach them how to navigate the process and make decisions for themselves and work with them in making those decisions. Having people whose job it is to work with young people in getting the word out and actually helping them move through the process of applying for assistance can be really important. One thing that we heard from young people in talking with them is that they don't want someone to do it for them. They want someone to teach them how to do it. There's sort of one extreme of just leaving young people to handle it on their own and the other extreme of doing it all for them. And what we heard from young people is they really want that middle ground where someone is working with them, listening to them, respecting them, and teaching them as they navigate through the process together. So giving them the support, but also empowering them to take action and make decisions for themselves. Lisa, who works at Young Invincibles in New York, said having support from someone who understood the process is key. 
I just know when I was walking through, like, for example, like housing assistance, there were a lot of things that I just didn't understand and I needed a person to walk me through. And I was lucky enough through my campus to have a social worker on staff to help me through when it comes to not just housing assistance, but also for like SNAP, for programs like these that I needed in order to stay afloat and again, like persist to college, but also persist and survive through the day to day. Jasmine Smith works for Youth Villages in Mississippi. She says the best way to work with young people around issues of accessing the safety net is to listen to them. I listen to my youth. I let them be the voice of concern. I let them tell me their inner thoughts and feelings about things. And then I say, okay, so I heard you say X, Y, Z. So do you want to start there? And most of the time they say, yes, this is a major problem that I need to work on in my life right now that really matters. So I definitely want to start here. And I just let them know that, look, you're not alone. I've been in your shoes. That's why I do this so well. I have a story to tell as well. So I'm here for you. Let's work together and walk it out, you know, to get to the next step in life. It's going to be more productive for you without you feeling alone, without you feeling afraid or feeling judged, you know, or feeling like I'm just here to do it because it's my job. And the third way to improve the safety net system for young people, Heather Hahn says it's to move away from withholding benefits from people who don't complete everything perfectly and hit very specific benchmarks. Third is replace the punitive approaches with support and minimized burden. One of those is work reporting requirements, where as a condition of receiving assistance, you need to submit the paperwork that shows that you are working the right number of hours and in the right situations. Those can be complicated. But I think for young people, in addition to any program rules that are specifically punitive, young people said to us, when we were talking with young people, we heard that they felt really insecure and threatened by some of the, just the legalese, the language in the applications that made very clear you must be telling the truth. If what you put on here is not the truth, you are subject to all kinds of penalties. When we were talking with young people, we heard a lot about people just feeling very worried. I think I did it right. I'm not sure. What if I did it wrong? If I put the wrong information in there, am I going to go to jail? And so I think there's part of a young person's point of view that makes that statement about you must make correct statements or or else that is really scary for them. Alejandra at Young Invincibles says to move away from a punitive system, it's important to talk to young people about the complicated, sometimes shifting reality of their living and work situations. But for young people to have a say in their situation, because nobody understands the situation more than them. So we need to really hear them out, see what's happening, really give them a chance to prove, hey, like, this job gives me crazy hours. And one month I only have 1,800 and another month I have 3,000. But like, it's those months that I struggle that I need help with. You know, I'm still somebody who needs help. It's not a one size fits all formula that they use for SNAP. We need to start listening to young people and giving them the opportunity to say that they need help. And this is how SNAP or Medicaid can help them. And the fourth and final way we want to highlight to improve the safety net Heather says it's to think broadly and openly about big changes to the way it's set up. Structural racism is 
a really important thing to be aware of in talking about safety net programs generally for young people or anyone. So we know that structural racism has contributed to differences in need among people by race and ethnicity, by the differences in opportunity, in intergenerational wealth, as well as through discrimination and so forth. So there's greater need among people of some races and ethnicities for support. But at the same time, the programs themselves have been built on racist assumptions about who is poor and why. Those safety net programs often focus on proving who is deserving for assistance. So you have to have copious paperwork to document that you are indeed deserving. This is where the work reporting requirements come in to make sure that you demonstrate you are deserving. And the programs often are designed to look for fraud as opposed to looking to help. So those aspects of structural racism are just really woven into the fabric of both the need for assistance and the way assistance is provided. According to researcher Heather Hahn, big structural changes to safety net programs would go beyond asking people to prove their worthiness for support and instead could look like guaranteeing basic income, expanding program eligibility, and eliminating work requirements. For now, Heather Tribble at Youth Villages says her goal is to provide support, and the young adults she works with will need a lot of it. I had support, so I want to make sure as much young people as I can touch that I can help be a supportive adult in their life. And so when you meet these young adults, you just realize how much support they do need. And a lot of us are fortunate to have it and these young adults don't. And so it takes a village to kind of step in to make sure they have what they need in terms of people, emotional, physical, and even financial support. I always tell my young adults, I'm going to help make you a successful, you know, adult. And so here I'm going to teach you all the steps of, you know, what adulting is and make sure you know when you run into other obstacles, how to navigate them. Because these won't be the only obstacles but I'm teaching the skills of if that door is closed, how to go to another door and, and get the services that you need. Creating a more accessible and supportive benefit system requires including the perspectives of young people to inform policy, practice, and future research. Here's Heather Hahn from Urban and Lisa from Young Invincibles. When we're talking about improving programs themselves or improving access to programs, talking to young people about what they need and really giving them a voice, a seat at the table, in shaping changes to policies and processes is important as well. Maybe if the government can actually gather young people together and really talk and ask them, what would you like to be changed on these applications so that, you know, if, for example, a young person is on their own, they don't have a family support system, like what is a way that we can restructure this application so that you are able to apply and actually get the help and resources that you need? I would say. The city and state government should really make the effort to ask young people what it is that they want to see in the application process changed, because that's another way that we can restructure the process and also get more young people to apply for these programs that they so desperately need. And Magby says that when youth feel empowered to talk about and shine a light on their experiences with the safety net, they can really impact change. I believe it's important for young students, young adults to get involved with policy because it affects you. It's something that you should care about. You are the voice. You can change things if you were able to just speak up and just understand that you are not alone. A lot of things would have to undone. People just felt defeated all the time, but we have to fight for the 
the lives that we want, the environment that we want, and the things that we need. And to take us home, here's Heather Hahn with a final thought. The experience of a 14-year-old and a 24-year-old, even the same person at 14 and 24 is going to be different. There's so much diversity of experiences of young people that it's really important to listen to young people themselves about what their experiences are, what their needs are, how they are interacting with the systems and trying to access supports so that the safety net programs can be designed in a way that really meets the needs of young people. And that's not going to be one thing. There's not going to be one solution or one size fits all. So it's really important to listen to the diversity of experiences to try to develop strategies that are going to work for the widest swath of young people. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, all young people need support from others and a runway to independence to give them time to develop into adults who can thrive. Every person needs it. Some have it, but some don't. And when they don't, that's where the public safety net programs come in. Two, Safety net programs have a lot of pain points that can make it challenging for young people to access. They're intimidating, they're complicated, and the barriers to access just don't take into account the reality of life as a young person. And three, there are lots of ways to improve access to the safety net for young people. And they range from small, actionable solutions to big structural change. Ultimately, it's really important for policymakers to ask and listen to young people talk about their experiences with the safety net and what they need most to thrive. So that's our show. Big, big thank you to Heather Tribble, Jasmine Smith, Alejandra, Lisa, and Magby. We truly appreciate your time and your sharing your insights with us. Big thanks also to Heather Hahn and Emily Pfeiffer to learn more about young people in the safety net and to watch an amazing video featuring many of these folks, go to urban.org slash youth safety net. Thanks also to lead superstar producer Katie Smith and to producer Jacinth Jones. And thanks to our sound editors from Podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and my two kids who continue to this day to be co-producers. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Bye. Adios. Sayonara.